Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. The leader of the Wagner Group is reportedly dead. Find out the circumstances under which it may have happened, to which the president says he's not surprised. Former Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani is among the latest co-defendants to surrender in Georgia. What Giuliani has to say and updates from the Fulton County Jail. The fight already starting as Republican candidates are calling each other out ahead of tonight's first debate. And the Biden campaign trying to take the spotlight with a surprising ad campaign. Can any of the candidates challenge Trump? Do any appeal to Democratic voters? We'll hear from a Democratic strategist and a Republican strategist on what to expect from tonight's debate. And sanctions are coming for Chinese officials who are involved in harming Tibetan children. And many state legislatures are stepping up efforts to protect U.S. lands. Breaking news tonight from Russia. Reports are emerging of a deadly plane crash. Yevgeny Prigozhin, leader of the Wagner Group, is among those reportedly killed. And TD's Jason Perry has the latest details. Russian mercenary group leader Yevgeny Prigozhin died in a plane crash on Wednesday evening. That's according to a channel affiliated with the Wagner Group. Russian state media confirms that Prigozhin was listed as a passenger and there were no survivors. Ten people were on board the plane, including three crew members. Russia's Emergency Situations Ministry said in a statement that the plane was traveling from Moscow to St. Petersburg and had crashed in the Tver region. Images from FlightRadar24.com show an unidentified plane flying northwest of Moscow, then disappearing from the screen. President Biden was asked to share his thoughts on the tragic incident. I recall, I was asked about this by you. I said, I'd be careful what I turned to what I wrote in. I don't know for a fact what happened, but I'm not surprised. Prigozhin was known for calling out the Russian military, saying the Wagner Group was not getting enough support. He also said the Ukraine war was based on lies and that the narrative Russia used to justify the war was not true. Russian President Putin has repeatedly said the war was a forced response due to actions from Ukraine and the West. In late June, Prigozhin led a mutiny in Russia against Russia's top military commanders. During the uprising, the Wagner Group took over a city in southern Russia called Rostov-on-Don. And surprisingly, residents in the Russian city cheered them on as the mercenary group advanced towards Moscow. Along the way, the Wagner Group shot down a number of military helicopters, killing Russian pilots. The president of Belarus said he talked Prigozhin out of the coup. And to reduce bloodshed, the Kremlin allowed Wagner fighters to return to Belarus. And what surprised many people was Putin gave Prigozhin amnesty for trying to overthrow the Russian military, which Putin said could have caused a civil war. Prigozhin eventually returned to Moscow, meeting with Putin five days after the failed mutiny, according to the Kremlin. Prigozhin later said the Wagner group would no longer fight in Ukraine and would fight in Africa to make Russia great. And just this past Monday, Prigozhin posted a video online, which may have very well been his last. We are working. The temperature is 122 degrees, everything as we like. Wagner PMC conducts reconnaissance and search actions, makes Russia even greater on all continents, and Africa more free. 
Meanwhile, the war continues on and Russia's capital continues to be attacked with drones. Russian authorities said on Wednesday three people were killed on the border of Ukraine in one of the latest drone strikes. Jason Perry, NTD News. More defendants surrender at the Fulton County Jail in Georgia today, ahead of former President Trump's planned surrender tomorrow. All 19 are charged with conspiracy in connection with challenges to the 2020 presidential election results in Georgia. NTD's Melina Weiskopf has updates for us on the ground. Melina, what's happened today? What can you tell us? So Rudy Giuliani, which is a former Trump lawyer and the former mayor of New York City, did surrender here to this Fulton County Jail this afternoon. The process was rather quick in and out, much of what we've seen for other co-defendants as well. He did have his mugshot taken. His bail was set at $150,000, which is slightly less than former President Trump. He is nearly charged with as many counts as former President Trump. He's charged with 12. Trump is charged with, with 13. Now, remember, Rudy Giuliani was on the front lines here in Georgia challenging the election results. For example, he did attend a legislative session here in Georgia where he presented to legislators what he said were examples of election fraud in the state of Georgia. Now, after leaving the jail, after surrendering, he did come to speak to reporters. He did not seem regretful at all about challenging those election results. He did say that he believes the district attorney is violating constitutional law. So we'll show you what Giuliani told a huge crowd of reporters after his surrender, as well as what his lawyer told me about their defense strategy watch. He has uh, violated uh, people's First Amendment right to advocate uh, the government, to petition the government for grievances, like an election they believe was poorly conducted or falsely conducted. People have a right to believe that in America. If you need to know what this is all about, the FBI stole my iCloud account. And you know when they went and stole it? The day that I began representing Donald Trump four years ago. Sir, you know when they gave it back? The day after I represented Donald Trump. The racketeering statute is so broadly drafted, it gives the state uh, an easier opportunity to get in all kinds of evidence and things are unrelated. So that's probably going to be the, the first point of attack to look at the recall. So with Rudy Giuliani's latest surrender, that makes a total of nine people of those 19 defendants who have surrendered here to this jail. So tell us more about Trump's impending appearance at the jail. How can we expect that to play out? So we're expecting former President Trump to come here tomorrow. We still aren't sure about the time. We have seen reports that he could come tomorrow night during prime time. He's really trying to tr uh, switch this around and trying to counter this messaging here with that prime time, time appearance if that does happen. But Trump will, his process will likely be like the other defendants that we saw. It will be a quick process. His bail is set at $200,000. The sheriff has said that they will be doing a mugshot and fingerprinting for him. However, we will have to wait and see what happens because ultimately he's different than other co-defendants because he does have secret service protection. A lot going on in Georgia. Thanks for that update, Melina. We'll certainly be checking in with you again tomorrow. And a Trump employee admits to lying. That's according to the special counsel's recent filing in the classified documents case. NTD's legal correspondent Arlene Richards has the latest on that. A D.C. grand jury witness in the classified documents case against former President Trump has changed his testimony. 
Special counsel Jack Smith's team said in court filings Tuesday that an IT worker described as Trump employee four in the indictment retracted his prior false testimony and provided information that implicated Nalta, D'Oliveira and Trump in efforts to delete security camera footage. It says when the witness testified in March, he repeatedly denied or claimed not to recall any contacts or conversations about the security footage at Mar-a-Lago. But the government's evidence showed otherwise. The IT worker, now identified as Yuskel Tavares, oversaw the surveillance camera footage at the property. He had been represented by Stanley Woodard, the same attorney who represents Trump's valet, Walt Nalta. Tavares switched to a federal public defender on July 5th, shortly after the June indictment. Chief Judge James Bosberg had referred Tavares to the public defender in response to prosecutor concerns about a potential conflict of interest. The filing states that Tavares changed his testimony immediately after receiving new counsel. Prosecutors provided this new information partly in response to Florida Judge Eileen Cannon's requests for an explanation of why the government was using two grand juries in different jurisdictions. They explained that they needed to use the out-of-state grand jury proceeding to continue their investigation into false statements by two witnesses who testified in D.C. Smith's team also requested a hearing to address the attorney conflict. Arlene Richards, NTD News. And Republican candidates are already arguing as they vie to emerge in the first primary debate. That's as former President Trump seeks to reach an even larger audience by doing something else. NTD's Iris Tao has more from the White House. The clock is ticking toward the first GOP primary debate tonight where eight GOP candidates will be fighting to seize that opportunity to make a name for themselves in their bid for the White House. We got uh, the first debate in this whole uh, shebang we're going to be able to do. It should be a lot of fun. So this is a good opportunity for me to introduce myself to the country. But a racist frontrunner, former President Trump, is taking away much of the attention by skipping the debate and planning to post an interview with former Fox host Tucker Carlson on X just five minutes before the debate. Carlson said today, Whatever you think of Trump, he is, as of tonight, the indisputable far and away frontrunner in the Republican race. We think voters have an interest in hearing what he thinks. Despite not being on the stage, Trump will loom large over tonight's debate. And his campaign touting his influence says his team will be tallying the number of times President Trump's name is brought up. And that says GOP candidates are already fighting before the debate, as former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley criticized entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy as lacking awareness of the Chinese threats, inciting his comments. Xi Jinping will not go for Taiwan until the end of my first term. And President Biden said today that he would try to see and get as much as he can of tonight's GOP debate. Reporting from the White House, Iris Tao, NTD News. And as the Republican presidential primary debate inches hours within reach, what insights should viewers be hoping to gain? And what should we expect? Next, we hear from Lieutenant Stephen Rogers, a retired police detective and former Trump campaign advisor who now heads up the advocacy organization Campaign for America. Lieutenant Rogers, welcome to our show. Thanks for coming on. What key policy differences would you say viewers should pay attention to tonight amongst the candidates? And how might these differences influence the party's direction? Well, I think it's very important that each candidate deliver a message that will indeed 
reflect on the state of our economy. Uh, much hasn't been said about that. They seem to be going back and forth, criticizing each other, and not really bringing policy differences to the American people. So the economy is a big deal. Anyone who walks into a supermarket today uh, realizes that uh, they're paying a lot more than they did a few years ago. So given the current political climate, how do you anticipate the candidates will address topics like economic recovery, social issues, and foreign policy? And what should viewers take away from these discussions? Well, I can tell you, it's a great question. And I am not hopeful that they're going to do that. And I just hope I'm wrong. Uh, I've, I'm a Republican, and uh, I'm dedicated to uh, being a conservative. But I'm very troubled over the fact that Republican candidates have spent more time criticizing each other, telling us how bad each Republican is, and not telling us how good they will do if elected. And you see that fellow behind me, Ronald Reagan? Uh, he had an 11th commandment years ago, thou shalt not criticize any other Republican during an election. Uh, I wish they would invoke that and stand by what he said. Indeed, there has been some divisive comments going back and forth. But looking directly at the candidates themselves, what qualities should viewers be looking for that could effectively challenge the Democrats' nominee in the general election? Very tough and very strong leadership. The ability to do again what the guy behind me did. Obviously, it sounds like I, I like them when I did. But uh, to, to make sure that they have the enough leadership skills to bring Watt together, to bring both parties together. Uh, Reagan did it with Tip O'Neill. Uh, it could be done again. They need to know how to sit down and speak with each other, not at each other. So I'm looking for that quality of leadership to not just unite the entire country again, but you got to unite the leadership. And so with such a diverse field of candidates, how do you think the GOP can balance the appeal to traditional conservative values and at the same time the evolving demographics? Well, the GOP has to be a big tent these days. We have to welcome everyone into the tent of the Republican Party. Messaging is terrible. Uh, we have to let people know that uh, the conservative agenda is one that will be valued by everyone across the board. Uh, no one should be discriminated against. No one should be removed from the party. You know, I get sick and tired of when I hear the word rhino, Republican in name only, when a Republican uh, justifiably disagrees with a certain agenda. So the message has to be a united party will bring a united America. And finally, what should viewers be looking for in Trump's interview tonight? Well, I don't know if they're going to be looking at Trump's interview. I know a lot of people say they will. Uh, I will not be because I'm interested in the future, not the past. And listen, I wish uh, the President Trump uh, well. Uh, he did a good job when he was president. But I'm one of those people who say, let's not be anchored down by the past, but let's look forward. Let's have a vision for America. That's why I think these debates are very important. Lieutenant Stephen Rogers, thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. And next, to offer his perspective on the debate, Democratic strategist, civil rights attorney, and former congressional candidate Robert Petillo. I spoke with him earlier today. Robert Petillo, great to have you on our show. Thanks for coming on. From your standpoint, what policy positions or shifts among the Republican candidates should Democratic voters pay close attention to? And how might these positions shape the narrative in the upcoming months? 
Well, what I'm really interested in seeing is how Republicans react to the current uh, uh, consternation about criminal justice reform with regards to the former president uh, versus the calls for uh, criminal justice reform that we saw in 2020. Uh, that at, the, at this point in time, Republicans have the opportunity to take the issue of criminal justice reform by the horns and really talk about reforming mass incarceration, the criminal justice system, uh, police brutality, et cetera, and relate that to President Trump. But I'm interested to see if any of the candidates really take that as being their issue. And some of the candidates um, do condemn Trump's indictments, and that is likely to come up tonight. How might Democrats use that as a talking point in response to the GOP primary discussions? Well, well I think it's very important is that you're going to see two camps really uh, rise to the top tonight. You're going to see the Chris Christie, Asa Hutchinson, uh, Mike Pence uh, for, uh, part of the party um, that are being very sharply critical of the uh, Republican Party and President Trump for his indictments. And then the other side, which is very much going to be supportive of President Trump. And I think Democrats are going to draw a bright line and say that there's you either have to be pro-democracy and pro-America or you can be pro-Trump. You can't be both. And I think that depending on how that breaks out, that's really going to determine a lot about what the Republican nomination will be, particularly thinking about what the Republican nomination can be without Trump in the race. And in terms of electability, what qualities should Democratic viewers be looking for in the GOP candidates' performances tonight, considering the potential matchups in the general election? Well, I, th I think what we're seeing from polling is that there's a large amount of discontent on the Democratic side of the aisle and an openness uh, to actually seeing uh, other candidates. However, it has to be a reasonable middle-of-the-road candidate. I think someone like Chris Christie could make a lot of inroads with Democrats. I think someone uh, such uh, people really want to see if Vivek Ramaswamy is really uh, what he says he is or if he's just kind of playing Borat and doing a social experiment by playing an internet troll turned uh, presidential candidate. I think there's a lot of fleshing out that's going to happen with President Trump sucks up so much air on the Republican side of the aisle, this is going to be the first introduction that many of these candidates have to a larger audience. And looking more at policies here, Democrats seem to anticipate the possibility of Republican candidates endorsing national restrictions on abortion. How might Democratic candidates leverage this issue to mobilize their base and highlight the differences between the parties? Well, we saw in 2022, mid, in the 2022 midterms, that Democrats have uh, gone fully in favor of women's rights and women's reproductive rights. I think that we're seeing that 70% of women, including 60% of conservative women, believe that you should have bodily autonomy as a woman. There's be a choice between women and her doctor. And I think that we see a group of almost all men, with the exception of Nikki Haley, uh, coming out very strongly on controlling women's bodies. So that really writes the 30-second ad and swing Senate seats around the country. Uh, Democrats have an outside chance of getting to 60 votes in the Senate uh, uh, in 2024. I think that that's going to be the main thrust of this, to be able to push this back on Republican candidates nationwide and potentially swing some of these swing states in favor of Democratic senators. All right, Robert Patillo, Democratic strategist, civil rights attorney, and former congressional candidate. Thank you so much. Thank you. Speaking of the debate, GOP candidate Larry Elder has filed a complaint with the Federal Election Commission. He says he met all of the criteria to qualify, including three national polls with at least 1% or more of Republican votes. At the last minute, I get a phone call from the chairwoman of the RNC, Ronna McDaniel, and the debate czar, whose name is David Bossie, and they told me that they were rejecting one of the three polls we submitted. The one they rejected is called the Rasmussen poll, and they said they were rejecting it because it is, quote, affiliated with Donald Trump, close quote. Elder said he wasn't aware that he couldn't use polls affiliated with any of the candidates. He also said that Rasmussen posted a statement on Twitter saying that he had nothing to do with their poll. 
and that Donald Trump had nothing to do with their poll. Elder said he has the option to file a lawsuit later, but he expects to be on the debate stage tonight. Another Republican candidate, Perry Johnson, also says that he met the necessary qualifications and announced that he will take legal action against the RNC. And what do audience members at the first Republican primary debate care about? They told NTD who they're supporting tonight and named the top issues for them this election. Voters at the first Republican primary debate in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, tell NTD which candidate they are supporting and why. I'm here because I love and we're all here because we want to support Donald Trump. Okay, why? Because he's the best candidate in the Republican Party. He's the best candidate in the country. He puts America first in the world with his policies and he loves our country and he's been proven to win in his previous term. Big fan of President Trump. I also do like Vivek Ramswamy, Ron DeSantis too. There's, those are a couple of solid candidates in the race. Definitely all in for Trump right now. I am a huge supporter of Donald John Trump. Why is that? Because if there's any person who's going to be able to take this country back, it is him and only him. But I think what we're seeing here today is just going to be who is going to be vice president or who is going to get a position in Trump's administration. This is what this whole thing is about. So what are some of the top issues that they care about? Just the economy, the way the, 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 we're the most indebted nation on the planet Earth, and now we've got an open border that's being flooded with millions and millions of illegal aliens. And they're coming here when we can't afford to house anybody. Uh, the top issues for the youth, especially in the state of Wisconsin, are like pro-family, uh, pro uh, good economic policy and good foreign uh, non-intervention policies that Trump supports. For me, as a younger voter, probably a lot of the social conservative issues like the transgender and all that kind of stuff that we have just seen come to light in the last few years here. As we to get instant post-debate analysis, be sure to tune in to NTD's Capital Report with Steve Lance tonight at 11 p.m. Eastern Time. We have an excellent panel of experts ready to break down what the candidates are saying and what it all means for our country. And coming up, the U.S. pushes back on China's re-education program for Tibetan students that has seen a million children for torn from their families. Find out more in just a moment here on NTD News. information on the passing of former President Obama's personal chef who recently drowned. The autopsy report indicates that the death was ruled an accident. Massachusetts public safety officials commented on the new autopsy report. It states that the cause of death for 45-year-old Tafari Campbell was drowning. The manner of death was ruled accidental. Campbell's body was recovered from this lake on Martha's Vineyard in late July. He had been working with the Obama family since 2017 when they were still living in the White House. Campbell leaves behind a wife and two children. Over a billion dollars recovered from stolen COVID-19 relief funds and thousands of alleged thieves charged. But the Justice Department isn't winding down. It just launched two new initiatives to go after the crime. The DOJ states that it's seized over $1.4 billion in COVID-19 relief funds that criminals had stolen and charged over 3,000 defendants. 
In the same statement, the department announces the launch of two additional COVID fraud enforcement strike forces, one in Colorado and one in New Jersey. This brings the total number of strike forces to five. The other ones are in California, Florida and Maryland. And around one million Tibetan children are in Chinese state-run boarding schools. Now, the U.S. is stepping up sanctions against the Chinese communist regime. NTD's Sam Wang has the details on that and bills to protect U.S. land. Washington plans to block the visas of Chinese officials who are involved in the forced assimilation of Tibetan children. According to the State Department, it impacts current and former Chinese officials, in particular those who are involved in state-run boarding schools in Tibet. The UN reports that around one million Tibetan children have been forcibly removed from their families due to China's re-education policy. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said on Tuesday, these coercive policies seek to eliminate Tibet's distinct linguistic, cultural and religious traditions among younger generations of Tibetans. He then urged the regime to end the repressive policy all throughout China. Last December, Washington also sanctioned two high-ranking Chinese officials over human rights violation in Tibet. On the local level, Lawmakers across 33 states have put forth 81 bills this year, all aiming to restrict Chinese citizens from buying properties near military bases. Some of those bills are now passed in states such as Alabama, Idaho, and Virginia. Those in support see the land as a national security interest, noting that the Chinese regime could use the land to spy on critical U.S. infrastructure nearby. Additionally, they also fear that the country's food supply could be in jeopardy if too much agricultural lands ended up in the hands of foreign entities. The bills gained attention back in February following a Chinese spy balloon flying across the U.S. before Washington shot it down. Sam Wong, NTD News. And an Indian spacecraft landed on the south pole of the moon today in a mission seen as crucial to lunar exploration and India's standing as a, as a space power. Rachel Faber produced this report. India has successfully landed on the moon. Not only does that have implications for the future of lunar exploration, but also the country's standing as a space power. Here's what you need to know about the Chandrayaan-3 mission. The mission was launched on July 14th and was headed to the moon's South Pole, where no one's been before. The South Pole is home to frozen water, which could be a source of water, oxygen and fuel. That opens up possibilities for future missions, moon mining, or even a colony. The Chandrayaan-3 lander is about the size of an SUV. Explorers will now spend two weeks running experiments, including analyzing the mineral composition of the moon's surface. India's previous attempt to land on the lunar south pole failed in 2019. Rough terrain is one of the complications of a south pole landing. But India's space agency says it made adjustments this time that made it more likely to stick the landing. The successful mission makes India the fourth country to land on the moon, just ahead of national elections next year. Prime Minister Narendra Modi's government is looking to spur investment in private space launches and satellite-based businesses. India has said it wants private space companies to increase their share of the global launch market by five-fold within the next decade. Coming up, Hollywood writers say the studios are trying to make them turn on each other. Find out why they've rejected the latest deal. And BlackRock's support for shareholder proposals on environmental and social issues fell sharply for the second year in a row, totaling just 7% of submissions. Find out why when we return on NTD News.
Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. Russian media report that the leader of the Wagner Group was killed in a plane crash today. He was on board in a business jet that crashed north of Moscow, killing all 10 people on board. Four more of former President Trump's co-defendants in the Georgia case, including Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell, surrendered to authorities. Trump is expected to do so tomorrow night. Eight Republican candidates for president will be on stage tonight for the first primary debate. The question remains, how much of the debate will be about Trump? Two people were detained as dual rallies sparked tensions in downtown Los Angeles. Parental rights and LGBT groups clashed over policies that would require schools to notify the parents of children who identify as transgender. NTD's Christina Corona has more. Around 200 people marched through downtown Los Angeles on Tuesday to express their opposition with what they believe is the wrong influence, sexualization, or grooming of kids in schools. They organized a parental rights march through Instagram at Leave Our Kids Alone, supporting certain school district policies. These policies mandate schools to inform parents if their children identify as transgender or seek to adopt a gender different from their assigned birth gender. The group gathered outside Los Angeles City Hall and marched to the Los Angeles Unified School District headquarters located at 3rd Street and Budry Avenue. Some protesters sat down in the street, leading the police to declare an unlawful assembly. Meanwhile, a smaller group of counter-protesters, some holding pride flags, formed. LAPD set up lines to separate the two groups. According to reports from the scene, police attempted to push the counter-protesters back, but two people allegedly resisted and were taken into custody. Critics like Ground Game LA and Queer Nation Los Angeles accused Leave Our Kids Alone of spreading hate and fear. The Leave Our Kids Alone members had American flags and signs saying parental rights matter and teach the Bible, not porn. State Attorney General Rob Bonta said he is investigating if the Chino Valley Unified School District had violated civil rights of students by adopting a parental notification law earlier this year. Christina Corona, NTD News, Los Angeles. Top asset manager BlackRock today reported a further decline in its support for shareholder proposals on environmental and social issues. For more on this, I spoke with NTD Business's Don Ma. Don, welcome. Great to have you on our show. Changes afoot at BlackRock, it seems. What's going on there? Tell us. So, Steph, it appears that the major asset manager BlackRock, BlackRock is dramatically lowering support for environmental and social proposals from shareholders over the past year. Um, so what does that mean? Let me give you some numbers to put that into perspective. The company only supported 7% of shareholder proposals on environmental and social issues. Now, this is three times lower the support compared to the previous year. And it's a whopping seven times lower compared to 2021. Now, in 2021, BlackRock supported nearly half of environmental and social proposals. So that's a huge difference. And Don, what do you put these changes down to? What's the cause? So the reason in the, uh, in the report uh, was that because proposals were lacking economic sense and that they were unlikely to bring long-term shareholder value, and many of the proposals would not be helpful to the companies in its funds. So 
BlackRock is also saying that its declining support for ESG proposals sort of follows a broader pullback on ESG among investors in the industry, uh, which, Steph, you know, by the way, is actually true because industry support for environmental and social proposals in the past year declined about 10%. So looking at all these changes, would you say that BlackRock is having some kind of change of heart when it comes to ESG policies? You know, it, it could be the case, but I'll let our viewers decide the answer to that question. But let me give you some facts. Back in June, BlackRock CEO Larry Fink actually said he's not going to, do, he's not going to use the term ESG anymore. And just last month, BlackRock appointed a Saudi oil executive to its board. Mind you, the company has been very vocal about sustainability and decarbonization. And oil is supposedly against all of that. And yet BlackRock appointed the chief executive of an oil giant to its board of directors. So I'll let our viewers decide if it's changing its mind on ESG. And would you say that it's possible BlackRock is pulling back from these policies due to backlash against them? Well, it could be, Steph, because the firm has faced intense scrutiny from U.S. investors and politicians in recent years. You know, Republican governors and other state officials have pulled billions of dollars in public pension funds out of BlackRock. Um, Larry Fink even said back in January that BlackRock, ha BlackRock had lost about $4 billion in managed assets as a result of the backlash against ESG. So it's very possible, Steph. All right, Don, thank you so much. Great to hear your insights. Thank you, Steph. Hollywood studios have proposed a deal to end the writer's strike, but the Writers Guild has rejected it, accusing the studios of trying to make the strikers turn on each other. NTD's Colin Fredrickson has more. Hollywood studios have proposed a deal to end the ongoing strike by writers. The president of the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, Carol Lombardini, says its priority is to end the strike and end the hardships that so many people and businesses that service the industry are experiencing. The proposal includes the highest wage increase for the Writers Guild of America in 35 years, a compounded 13% increase over a three-year contract. Certain writers could get a 15% increase in their minimum rate. The studios say this could mean that for some, their pay could be over $9,000 a week for up to 19 weeks. And written material produced by artificial intelligence would not be considered literary material. Also, writers would get viewership data, so they would know how many people were watching their content. That is not a bad offer. If normal people read that it's 14000 a week for a writer in the writer's room, or 12,000, then you lost a sense of reality what the normal income situation is. Producer and director Uwa Ball has worked with actors like Jason Statham, Ben Kingsley, and Michelle Rodriguez. He's trying to cast Wesley Snipes in his new movie, but can't because of the strikes. He says we shouldn't forget that many of the strikers are very blessed in comparison with the rest of the world. I feel like they acting like they're fighting for the small worker, but they're not. I know a lot of crew people, they're suffering now. You know, gaffers, electricians, drivers, catering companies in LA, restaurants have massive problems now. Stuff like this. The Writers Guild has rejected the offer. It says the proposal contains limitations, loopholes, and omissions, which fail to protect writers. The Guild accused the studios of being disingenuous and trying to get them to cave. They're dragging this out 
Um, why, I don't know, because this means nobody's working. Actress Laura Ulrico is striking with the Screen Actors Guild. She says she wants the writers and actors to hold out until they get a fair deal. She herself has been affected by the strikes. There have been a few um, gigs I've been able to do. There's some commercial projects. I'm a hand model and a voiceover thing I was able to do. I do audiobooks too. So there's a few things, but it's not much. It's not how we make our living. On the side, Orico also runs a PR agency called Laura Orico Public Relations. And aside from actors and writers, film critics are also hurt. It's pretty bad. Obviously, with the actors and writers on strike, the press junket and interview opportunities are becoming much more slim. Film critic Sean Bowman believes the offer was a step in the right direction. He says the longer the strike goes, the more everyone is hurt, including him. It's especially the case with it heading into award season and festival season because there are a lot of film festivals where they tend to be cash cows for film critics like myself and they're not going to be as profitable this year. The Writers Guild of America says it will soon release a detailed description of the negotiations. Colin Fredrickson, NTD News. Coming up, exciting news from a former tennis great as Serena Williams announces the newest member of her family. We'll have that story after the break. Now for your sports news, here's NTD's Dave Martin with an update from a former tennis great. That's right, Steph. Serena Williams announced the birth of her second child yesterday, a baby girl named Adira River Ohanian. The 23-time Grand Slam champion announced the news over social media, along with husband Alexis Ohanian and daughter Olympia, who's five. Now, according to her husband on X, formerly known as Twitter, baby and Serena are healthy and happy. The 41-year-old Williams last played at the 2022 U.S. Open, bowing out in the third round. Prior to the event, Williams, rather than saying she was retiring, said she was evolving away from tennis. Her 23 major titles are second only to Margaret Court's 24. And in college football news, former USC star running back Reggie Bush plans to file a defamation lawsuit against the NCAA over a statement released by the organization two years ago that suggested his career was a pay-for-play arrangement. The statement in particular was in response to a question about whether Bush would have his records restored in light of the NCAA's then new name image likeness rules going into effect, and it was released to media outlets in late July of 2021, saying in part, quote, although college athletes can now receive benefits from their names, images, and likenesses through activities like endorsements and appearances, NCAA rules still do not permit pay-for-play type arrangements. Now, pay-for-play has generally been referred to players getting paid outside those marketing type contracts. Bush's case is one of the more famous NCAA investigations. The 2005 Heisman winner had to forfeit his trophy in 2010 after a four-year investigation determined he received improper benefits during his time there. Bush's lawyers called the NCAA statement, quote, completely false and highly offensive. A your sports viewing schedule tonight, seven baseball games are on, including one with three-time Cy Young winner Clayton Kershaw will be on the mound as the LA Dodgers play at the Cleveland Guardians. And that's it for your sports news today. Steph, all yours. Thanks, Dave. 
And if you have any news tips or feedback for our show, remember that you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox. Good night.